When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. Some of you may cherish that beautiful evocation of exile and displacement that opened Psalm 137. Some of you might be as old as me and remember, with fondness, the reggae setting of this verse by Boney M in the 1970s. By the rivers of Babylon. But the psalm ends with these words. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your babies and smashes them against the rocks. This violent call for retribution against the Babylonians brings us up short and reminds us that hatred is a powerful human emotion that can't be airbrushed away. And it's our subject for this week's podcast. We've called the show Hatred and Freedom. How does freedom come into it? Well... If not the freedom to hate, then the freedom to be able to express our feelings forthrightly, which is not always a straightforward matter. Here's an extract from an article by Mark Lithgow on the Naked Scientist website asking some big questions. Can the scientific method really explain what love or hatred is, even if it tells us which parts of the brain are associated with those emotions? Can it really tell us what consciousness is? To look fully inside the brain, to really know what someone is feeling, maybe we need something more than science can offer. And maybe combining science and art goes some way towards providing that something more. Science plus art, more than the sum of their parts. That's the title of Mark Lithgow's article. Joining me to reflect on these profound matters are the philosopher Professor Arif Ahmed, a fellow of Gonfal and Keyes College, Cambridge, and a strong advocate for the need to tolerate diverse political views on university campuses. And welcome back to Naked Reflections, stalwart Dr. Kitty Alone, research fellow here at the Wolf Institute, who's currently leading a project on forgiveness, a process which it might be argued is relevant to our discussion. We'll find out. Kitty. Wearing your social scientist's hat, do you think hatred is a natural part of the human condition? In short, I would say yes. It's probably a bastion of the sort of the human emotional experience. Um, there has inevitably been sort of discussions in the literature as to whether it's an emotion, what exactly is hate, um, what are its characteristics. But I think it's safe to sort of go with 
the notion that hatred or hate is an emotion that shares similarities with other related emotions such as contempt, anger, uh, disgust, for example. But it has something unique about it, I think, which is almost a moral flavour to it. And examining people's perceptions of hatred, one of the things that comes through is that it sort of implies something immutable about the moral character of the person that you hate. So, for example, in the literature, the difference between anger and hatred is that anger is directed at a particular behaviour. So if a person alters their behaviour, you're inclined to be less angry at them and sort of pave the way for forgiveness and, you know, the the social relationship is prepared, etc. However, hatred is not like that. You don't hate the behaviour, you hate the very sort of essence of the person. It might be worth distinguishing hatred from contempt, at least when some philosophers look at it. So, for instance, the way Nietzsche looked at it, hatred could actually be positive in some ways. It's not a matter of disgust or contempt for the thing that you're competing against, but it's more a will to destroy it, um, simply for your own survival or for your own assimilation. And he thought there was something positive and life-affirming about that as well. Um, And I think maybe we can even see something of that in the passage from the psalm um, that Ed quoted to start with. So it would be interesting to talk a little bit about this other angle on hatred as well, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right, there is sort of a, at least for me, as not a philosopher, there is intuitively a difference between Mm. hatred and contempt. Um, Contempt in the literature is that it's the target of one's emotions is seen as inferior. But whereas, I don't know, hatred seems almost egalitarian in a way. The target of your hate does not necessarily inferior to you you're often connected with someone you hate aren't you i mean you argue with those you're closest to you sometimes hate those you're closest to you might even be married to them or they may be your children or your parents well you'd hope not but it's certainly true that there's a fine line between hatred and love or between hatred and other emotions that you have that connect you with people who are who are close to you but i think it also points to the need to distinguish between different kinds of emotional attitudes moral reactions and so on that all fall under the label hatred um i mean this is one of the aspects of our psychological vocabulary i think that it's easy to overlook sometimes which is we don't always use a single name for a single thing but actually cover a whole range of different things which perhaps you know ought to be distinguished and have different moral flavors um including the two that kitty distinguished just now and of course we're a bit lazy with language aren't we arif this must be a frustration for you as a teacher and lecturer here that people use the same word but often mean different things Yeah, a hatred is a good example. When you think about the way hatred is used in the conversation that we've been having now, you think about the way in which it's used in the law, when you think about hate crime and so on. And also when you think, as I said, about different kinds of feelings that one can have when one's making a moral judgment. There's a whole range of distinctions that need to be made in a blanket word like hate or love for that matter, or many other psychological terms. While they're useful sometimes in everyday discussion, um, sometimes conceal differences rather than unifying things that are really alike. Kitty, does your work on forgiveness shed any light on this? I knew you'd ask me that, and I was on the train thinking, how can I possibly answer this? I think the assumption is that to forgive, you cannot hate. However, having spoken to ex-combatants in Northern Ireland, so men who were in prison for 16 years, who murdered British soldiers, um, they don't, or at least they didn't exhibit what I would think would be sort of obsessive hatred at all. They seemed very sort of balanced. But when talking about the British state, for example, their opposition to the British state in Northern Ireland, there was no sense of hatred about it. It was as if they'd justified their struggle to themselves. So therefore, it wasn't a hate crusade. It was a legitimate political struggle. But hatred's not necessarily irrational. I mean, take the quote there from the Psalms. I mean, if you're displaced, if you're exiled, if you're removed, you may well justifiably and rationally hate the person or the people that have done that. And it's interesting that you say that it's sort of 
reasonable or justified and also relates back to what what you said Arif that there is a very fine line neurologically speaking between love and hate and actually UCL recently ran a study looking at neurological activity when you look at um, photos of people that you hate interestingly most participants brought in a picture of an ex-lover or a colleague Uh, one lady brought in a politician which I thought was quite (laughs) nice Um, but there are two very similar areas of activity in the brain between sort of romantic love and hate but what's different is that hatred doesn't diminish the sort of the rational aspect of the brain activity so you're right it's not irrational like the example of love you know where you sort of overlook people's flaws hatred is very calculated in a way and it would make sense right from an evolutionary perspective that you need to have this level of rationality and awareness to be able to plan your next move if you like so it's quite strategic i think do you think that hatred is is a sort of energizing capacity in the way that love is as well so that's one thing philosophers have sometimes said is that what's positive about these really strong feelings is that you know without them you perhaps don't have the energy or the force of character or whatever it is to achieve your aims whereas hatred can actually be very very useful in that yeah, no, I agree. I think it really is like a galvanizing force. I mean, it's always considered to be something terribly negative. And interestingly, in psychological studies where they were looking at sort of lay perceptions of hatred, everybody was very quick to say, oh, I've never felt hatred. But then, um, for example, there was a study with Israelis and they said, oh, I've never felt hatred for anybody. It's very primitive and base and I'm not a hateful person. <laughs> However, you know, ask them to think about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and then they were more than happy to sort of advocate dropping bombs on a city. So... It's not necessarily the all negative thing that it's sometimes made out to be. I think you're right, Arif, that it has this motivating force. I think you can also distinguish in terms of that between what you might call the sort of cold form of hatred and a hot form of hatred. So the form of hatred that you know you find in someone like Iago, for instance, in, in the play, um, is is cold, whereas perhaps Othello, you know, exhibits a more hot form of hatred towards the end of the play. I suppose you might also distinguish between, you know, the motivational effects that they have. The other thing I'd want to say, of course, is that behind it, philosophically, there is an important distinction. The way that Hume put it was between distinguish between reason and the passions. And he said reason by itself can never motivate anyone to do anything. If you were just an entirely rational being, you'd actually have no motivation to do anything at all because reason by itself couldn't tell you what to do what motivates you is always some sort of feeling or passion and it could be cold and it could be hot but that can include hate and love or it could include more mild things like dislike antipathy preference and so on but the important point is that there can never be any purely rational being whoever does anything so in a way it's slightly distorting to distinguish between rational emotions and irrational emotions because to some extent they're all non-rational but none of them are meant to be in the first place that's if you take this sort of human perspective it's very different from the sort of platonic perspective where you know there can be such a thing as rational motivation you're motivated by the good in a certain way and that involves a certain kind of intellectual achievement or insight um i think that's a way of thinking about motivation that hume and nietzsche and others would have wanted to get away from i think you're probably right and i also think it has an extremely strong bonding power when we start talking at the group level, I think hatred becomes very important in binding communities together. And takes over. I mean, there are periods of madness in human history, aren't there, where that group dynamics is taken over by hatred of an other, whoever that other is. When one thinks of the attitudes towards Russia at the moment, the issue of the Russian-Ukraine war, the hatred that seems to be directed from nation to nation, or leaders anyway, on behalf of a nation, is there something different in that? 
Well, one thing I think is interesting is in the case of national hatred, if you like, it is terrifying because it's the one body that's supposed to have a monopoly on violence. It's on the side of the haters. And that's one of the reasons why I think quite rightly we're very uh, cautious and react very strongly against politicians, even in this country, who even suspected of trying to whip up some kind of race frenzy or something like that. Because, you know, when it's, it's in the hands of politicians, I think it's really dangerous. One of the things I want to emphasize is, of course, in the case of Russia, for instance, they don't have free speech. They don't have freedom of the press. Um, and that's one of the things that freedom of the press can help to sort of prevent is if you have a lively, skeptical press that comes from an attitude of basically contempt and disgust for, for all politicians. You know, people tend not to take them so seriously. And that's the kind of world I'd rather live in. I agree with you, except I can't help but think of the United States, where there's a free press, freedom of speech, and a great deal of hate. There is hate. You know, of course, there's a hate in, in all sorts of countries. But you have to ask yourself what kinds of hates. If you think about the United States, they don't have, for instance, Holocaust denial laws as they have in, in many European countries. Which country has a bigger problem with anti-Semitism, France or America? Germany or America. So it's not clear whether legal intervention is always going to help in those cases. And the other thing I'd say is that if you think about recent examples in the history of the United States, where you might suspect that politicians have been trying to exploit racial differences and racial hate, those politicians also had, as far as I could tell, a fairly casual relationship to things like freedom of the press. Um, and it's only because they have the First Amendment in the United States that they sort of have the freedoms that they do. And even in some ways, those are being eroded. Kitty, how does that play out in the work you're doing at the moment? Because you're dealing in regions of the world where there is hatred, there's been violence, we're in a post-conflict situation, whether it's Northern Ireland or whether it's South Sudan or, or Bosnia, but also very, very tense situations at the moment. I mean, in the case of South Sudan, for example, you might use the term post-conflict quite carefully. And indeed, in the Balkans as well, post-conflict is perhaps quite a, a loose label. But the hatreds are still there. They're hatreds that go back centuries. And they remain dormant at some times. But, you know, there's always, particularly in light of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, in Serbia, for example, we now have the rise of Serbian nationalism, heavily aided by a, a disinformation campaign by Russia. Um, and you can see it happening. You can see the stoking up of ages old hatreds. And what's interesting from an intergroup dynamic is that it doesn't have to be directed at a particular person. It can be directed at something that a group represents, something that a group symbolises, which makes sort of widens the goalposts, really. I mean, anything is available for your hatred if you've done that. You don't have a gripe directed against one single person. Instead, it's this abstract notion or concept of group that you have an issue with. So, Kitty, in the Balkans, let's say, or in South Sudan, if there had been hate speech laws in place just after Yugoslavia had broken up or before the war in Sudan, would that have helped? I don't know. I don't think it would have done. What's interesting about the Balkans, actually, is if we think about sort of 1992 to 1995, I mean, the internet was about, but it wasn't the online world that we're in now. And yet terrible bloodshed and violence still happened. I wonder if we could move on to the question of this uh, relationship between hatred and freedom, Arif, because there's something interesting here. If we're saying that hatred is part of the normal human condition, mm. um, then we need to be able to express hatred. But of course, we're, we're very circumscribed. We may be wanting to be civil to somebody we really don't like, but how, how, how do we handle that tension? The background to this is that society itself you know, rests on a fundamental tension between, on the one hand, 
the individual and their liberty. They have their own feelings, their own preferences, their own desires, and their own beliefs. They want to express them. That's part of what it is to be a human being, is to express yourself. Um, on the other hand, there's a tension between that and the need for social cohesion, which we all need if we're going to have the benefits, the great, the unquestionable benefits of living in a society rather than living a solitary life. So that's a basic, if you like, philosophical fact on which you know, political problems all rest. Um, now, when it comes to hate and, you know, reconciling that with the need for freedom of expression, for instance, I think one thing that probably hasn't always been emphasized is that if you want to fight hatred, sometimes the best way to do it is through communication rather than through suppression of feelings. Um, so if you think about, for instance, the uh, racism in the United States, you know, you may know the story about Daryl Davis, who is a, a black jazz piano player who... You know, made something of a career out of befriending and having conversations with white men who were members of the Klan. And just talking to them, um, it started by accident, I think, and persuaded them to leave through a process of conversation. So often the way to respond to hate is not to suppress it, um, but actually to engage people in communication. I'm not saying that that always works, but I'm saying that it can be overlooked. So that's one of the ways in which I think, although there is a tension between hatred and freedom of expression, sometimes that can be resolved by having more speech and more communication rather than less. One of the things that hatred does is it breaks down the idea of heterogeneity amongst outgroup members. So you're more likely, for example, to think they're all the same. You have a negative experience with one outgroup member, you know, you apply that moral character to the entire outgroup, which makes you less likely to want to interact with them. But, um, you know, particularly in the field of interfaith, for example, heavily based on the ideas of Allport, is that quality contact with outgroup members can actually help break down the barriers such as hatred, negative stereotypes. So, yes, it's, it's this difficult situation of by stopping contact, are you stopping the psychological processes at play that could happen through positive contact? But the problem is that if it's negative contact, then it just exacerbates the problem. That's interesting, Kitty. I mean, I'd be curious, actually, could you, could you tell me, with this sort of contact that you're describing in Oldport, is it necessary um, for the parties to feel completely free to express themselves, or do there have to be sort of controls on what you can say? One of the things that he sort of stipulates as a prerequisite for this sort of contact to work is that the groups or the members of the group in this contact situation have to sort of meet each other on equal terms. Mm. And therefore, there is no holds bars, basically. So if there's one group feels disenfranchised or disempowered, breaking down of all these boundaries isn't going to work. So one of the things is that the groups have to meet on sort of egalitarian territory. Um, and the moment you say, of course, well, you can't talk about this or you can't talk about that, that disrupts the balance. That's interesting. So, so, so the idea would be that somehow you could lay the ground rules as sort of procedural rules, saying okay. things like you can't interrupt or you can only talk for a certain Absolutely. amount of time, but no content-based rules. Absolutely, yeah. So if I did something like that, say I had a seminar, for instance, and I had people with different religions or someone like me who's an atheist and someone who's Christian, someone who's Muslim, or even you know really controversial issues about today to do with race or to do with trans issues or other things, if I had a seminar of that sort where people could just say whatever they liked um, and you consent to, to that... Um, but everyone gets an equal time to speak. The all-port prediction is that that will be productive. Yes, the all-port yeah. prediction is that that's one of the necessary features for successful positive contact to happen. And in fact, it's interesting that you, you mentioned this sort of, you know, these big hot topics. On the previous project I did at the Wolf Institute, I spent a lot of time looking at um, London-based interfaith groups. Mm-hmm. And I was really surprised at their appetite for tackling really 
big issues. I remember I went to this one somewhere in East London. And like, we're so sick and tired of just coming to these interfaith groups and it's just people hand around a samosa and we all say, wow, aren't we all the same? Like, we want to talk about these issues. But is that hatred? There are some people who hate the other, but there's also people who hold very strong views. There is that difference, isn't there? And in a university context, I'm intrigued by this because I also have, we all have the same sort of issues. We want to tackle difficult topics, but we want to do it in a way that's sensitive to the others who are in that room who may be the target of that abuse. So, of course, you know, what counts as hatred? And this goes back to something I was saying earlier, which is that, of course, hatred covers a whole variety of things. Um, you know, is it hostility? Is it contempt? Is it dislike? Is it a mere you know, incompatibility of really important aims? Um, and that's even reflected in the way the law is interpreted. So if you think about what counts as a hate crime, for instance, you know, that's going to cover a variety of things, not just one very simple sort of emotional charge. Um, but I think even there, in a university context, it can be helpful because we are in a situation now, I'm afraid, in many universities where if you take one side of some arguments, the people on the other side will be hostile, not just in the sense of disagreeing with you, but they will think you're a bigot. And they will actually, in some cases, as you know, have called for people to be fired from their jobs and some people have left their jobs because of the campaign of hate against them. I would say hate in very strong terms. So I think there is quite a lot of emotional charge in some of these debates. And what I'm getting from this conversation is that you know, there is evidence, even in, the, in those cases, having quite open conversations. So not the sort of interfaith conversations where everyone's alike, but conversations where everyone's actually very different can be productive and helpful. And presumably one needs to create the safe conditions for the participants to be able to speak openly when you're dealing with those sorts of issues in the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. Universities used to be a place like that. Um, and I regret to say universities are not a place like that in this country anymore. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Arik Ahmed and Kitty Alone, and we're talking about hatred and freedom. Sooner or later, discussions of this sort come up against the sea change affected by recent developments in the technology of artificial intelligence and social media. Here's Vivian Ming speaking on the Naked Scientist show Regeneration, How the Body Heals. So an interesting truth in my experience with almost all technology, not just artificial intelligence, is at least when it first comes out, it invariably helps the people that need the least help. Because people like me with very fancy degrees, living in elite places, we're the ones that can actually make use of it. This is true of the internet. This is true of educational technology. Turns out it's immensely true of artificial intelligence. I want to touch on this question of, of social media because it does seem to have changed everything. And has it changed everything simply because more people are able to participate? Because when I looked at some of the medieval woodcuts or some pre-modern perceptions of the other, they're pretty grim. In fact, they're even worse than what I see out there. What difference is the social media taking? In many cases, it's anonymous. So if you're some sort of troll, there's not the social consequence of reputational damage from, you know, saying something horrible. So you're hidden behind the mask of anonymity. But also, just in terms of you are dealing with much larger numbers of people, I suppose. So centuries ago, had somebody said something sort of socially unacceptable, it may not have led to the sort of extreme public outburst of rage that it often does today. And what I think is ironic, actually, is that when you think of things like the trans debate or, you know, somebody being cancelled online, what is ironic to me is that the person that's being cancelled becomes a hate target themselves. They are conceived to be utterly immoral as a person because they've said something that is unpalatable to a proportion of you know the online community. But what that means, of course, is that the people that are calling for this person to be cancelled 
are themselves experiencing the emotion of hate in the psychological literature, that this person is immutable, this person is morally bankrupt, there is nothing this person can do to alleviate the problem. So it just seems something very interesting has gone on in the social media space regarding sort of perceptions of harm, but also hatred as well. Another difference I'd want to say is that with social media, the technology has short-circuited something which turns out to have been very beneficial for our race, which is that when you take time to do something, you sometimes have second thoughts, you think about it, you know, and you might end up not doing something stupid. It doesn't take a second to retweet something. You just have to, you don't even have to cut and paste anything. You just have to press a button and you can retweet something. You can't really retweet a woodcut. I mean, it would take quite a long time to retweet a woodcut. And if you had some sort of hate-filled woodcut, you know, by the time you were halfway through doing the retweet, i.e. producing another one, you know, you might have second thoughts. I push back slightly on that because although the woodcuts might not be easily circulated, a, a sermon on a Sunday at Easter can be full of hate. And as a result of hearing these words or as a result of looking at images on the wall, suddenly you feel this antipathy towards another, you know, whether it's the Christian towards the Jew or the Muslim or the other way around. Um, so there is this immediacy in the pre-modern era. I suppose what we've got in terms of the speed of communication is something can happen on the streets of, you know, Islamabad and it's transferred the streets of Bradford very quickly or the streets of Gaza or Jerusalem to the streets of London. Um, so you've got the immediacy, but I, I wonder whether we kind of ignore the effect from the pre-modern period. No, you're quite right. Of course, the media themselves, you know, could have a great deal of vividness if you think about pictures, the right kinds of words. You know, John Stuart Mill gives a you know, classic example about incitement to violence, which is an example of someone talking about, you know, the, the corn dealers and how they're immiserating the poor. So that's been something that's always been true. I think the, the one thing that's changed that I want to emphasize is the ease and the speed by which you can mobilize a flash mob now. You just have to press a few buttons and suddenly there's thousands of people who really care about it piling in on you. And then you have the effects, including the psychological effects that Kitty brought out. What about separating the wheat from the chaff? I mean, I just sometimes wonder that this, this won't be surprised that I'm older than our, our two contributors and panellists today. But nevertheless, I, I do worry that even you aren't as literate in separating the wheat from the chaff when it comes to the <laughs> kids is looking at me that perhaps, you know, teenagers and, and kids are. And I, I wonder whether we're, we're the ones who are struggling with this rather than the younger generation. Definitely my kids know what's going on much more than I do. That's absolutely true. And I'm sure I'm about as old as you. So don't <laughs> um, You can come back. I mean, one thing I would say is there's an asymmetry in incentives between, you know, sensible stuff that might be a little bit boring and mad stuff that's going to get people's attention. Because the big platforms, which are practically monopolies, you know, have got a strong incentive to promote Alex Jones rather than a show like this. Why is that? Because it gets people's attention. And their revenue model is based on getting attention because that's how they can charge premium rates for advertisements. You mentioned the, the Hate Crime Act, Arif. If an act is criminal, how does the term hate help us? Well, I think if you look at the way in which it's been incorporated into the, the law in Britain, the idea was meant to be that you can increase the sentence for people if certain crimes which have been aggravated by feelings of hatred. You know, I can totally understand what was behind it, which was to attack certain kinds of discrimination and certain kinds of vilification. You know, things can get out of hand when you get a kind of an effect where you know, it covers so many things, as we've discussed. You might end up overreaching and criminalising things that really ought to be within the bounds of free speech. Um, religion is probably the most obvious example of this. So you will know, for instance, that, you know, insulting religion, for instance, there's a the big issue over Section 5, all, all this controversy over whether that should be OK or not. But it's an example 
of how there are dangers with the law encroaching on legitimate free speech, you know, when it's trying to fulfil a perfectly understandable aim, but inevitably, and through nobody's bad intentions, you know, will end up chilling discussion of religion of the sort that we ought to be having if, as Kitty says, these open discussions really are a way to promote mutual understanding. Do you think that leads us into the possibility of creating almost like a hierarchy of hate? So somebody who murders a man because he's homosexual is somehow far worse than a man who murders his wife because he hates his wife like one is somehow considered more morally reprehensible than the other well it's interesting i mean part of it depends on whether you think moral judgments are associated with the length of a sentence so it's not clear to me to that so i mean to give an example you know there, there are cases in my own work where i have to think about punishments for various things and sometimes you punish something more strongly simply because it's harder to detect and that's not a moral judgment about the thing. It's simply because if something's harder to detect, one of the ways to deter it is to increase the, the, the sentence. Moral judgments about hate to you know, these aspects of the criminal law. Having said that, in the debate behind them, that was ev- evidently part of it. And it's unclear, as you say, on a moral basis, you might make that claim. If you take the view that, you know, what consequences, then you might think it's the effects, not the causes that matter. So whether something's caused by hate, now all that should matter is its effects. And a murder that's caused by hate is no better or worse than a murder that's caused by jealousy or just by some Raskolnikov type of crime. So there I kind of accept what you say. You might very well criticise it. Well, I hate to say it, but that's all we've got time for today. Thanks to my guests, Arif Ahmed and Kitty Alone. And thank you, dear listeners, for listening. If you enjoyed the show, and I'm sure you did, you might want to browse our wide-ranging archive of podcasts, including a couple on artificial intelligence, conflict resolution, and communication. And feel free to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with some more guests and another pressing topic.